Before Jesus ascended into heaven from Jerusalem, he had these words for his disciples uh, earlier in Galilee. And he gave them these clear things recorded in Matthew chapter 28. He said this in verses 19 to 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so the main task uh, the church has been given is to make disciples. And the three other aspects listed in Jesus' commands are, are aspects of this task. So we are to make disciples and we are to do so as we go, baptizing them and then teaching them to observe or obey all that Jesus has commanded. And this last matter is certainly not limited to what Jesus specifically said when he was ministering on earth. Uh, But indeed, all that he has said by the Holy Spirit in the Holy Word, the Bible, for all scripture is breathed out by God. So the Great Commission then is more than simply evangelism. It is more than simply preaching the gospel of salvation that is found only by repentance of sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through his life, death and his resurrection. Now don't get me wrong, that is the heart. The gospel is the heart of what we are on about as a church. But there is more to that. Jesus is advocating for total submission to him. When people confess him as Lord, it means that he is Lord of their whole lives. And so the goal of ministry is to see people completely devoted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's why the overarching goal of the Mafra Community Church is to present Christ to all and all mature in Christ. So right there you have evangelism and edification. In the past 30 to 40 years or so, there has been a decided attempt to actually separate the nature of Jesus himself. People have suggested that you can receive Jesus as saviour, and then at a later point, you can make him your Lord. But you can't divide Christ like that. He is at the same time, both saviour and Lord. And so you know him as both, or you don't know him at all. However, this movement led to the teaching that people could be saved, that that they could have the assurance of eternal life, while at the same time having no repentance, living as though nothing in their lives had changed. And so the result is what is known as carnal Christians, Christians who are still in the flesh, still of this world. But that's an oxymoron, because true Christians have been born again by the Spirit of God and have been made new creations in Christ. Now, the reason for this type of thinking was to avoid the claim that salvation involved human works. But it was an unbiblical overreaction. It was to swing the pendulum fully the other way, because though we're not saved by our good works, God's gracious salvation leads to our grace-empowered 
good works. Hence, no good works means no assurance of salvation. Because regeneration always leads to transformation. The Bible speaks against both of these two extremes. The first is legalism. This is the suggestion that we can earn our way into heaven uh, by following rules, uh, by being a good person. I've done everything well. Well, this could not be further from the truth. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ's and his work alone. It's also to the glory of God alone, which means that it's only God's work that saves, not ours. But the second issue is what is known as antinomianism. Antinomianism. Nomos is the Greek word for law. And so antinomianism means against the law. This is the suggestion that Christians should not be told how to live in any way, shape or form. Is any hint that we are being told to do a certain thing or to act a certain way is met with the cry of legalism. But is that what we read in the Great Commission? Do we hear Jesus saying, make disciples, but don't tell them to obey everything because you don't want to be called a legalist. No, we hear Jesus saying, teach them to obey everything I have commanded. Now, that's not legalism. That is discipleship. That is what it means to be in Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's not legalism, that's discipleship. Now our focus today then is on one specific point of discipleship. Over the past few months, uh, we've been working our way through the book of Titus. uh, A letter the Apostle Paul wrote to Titus, his younger co-worker in the faith. Titus had been left on the Mediterranean island of Crete, Uh, to finish establishing appropriate governance in the churches that he and Paul had planted. Now, undergirding this letter is the wonder of God's grace in Jesus Christ. It's a letter that's filled with the good news of Jesus. But this good news is not simply a matter of salvation. It's also a matter of (coughs) sanctification, of growing in holiness and godliness. It's a letter that shows us what it is to live as the church of Christ. Now, Paul has given us tremendous practical detail about the life of the church, including the kind of governance that glorifies God. But our focus today, he speaks about the manner of living that glorifies God. In chapter 2, Paul lays out for us the standards of godliness for the different ages and genders in the church. Now, if we look to the end of chapter 2, we read in verse 15, Paul says to Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now, here we see that humans don't really change. I said that in the last generation, People have tried to speak against uh, Christians submitting to the lordship of Christ, of Christians necessarily growing in their maturity. Well, it seems that's always been a problem. Why would Paul need to say this if teaching about godliness uh, was not going to cause any issue? Well, the answer is obvious. Because in teaching about the necessity of godliness, 
Titus was definitely going to get pushback. The false teachers were teaching against this. And many in the church believed their lies as well. And so that's why Paul says to Titus that he is to declare these things steadfastly. That's why preachers must declare these things steadfastly. That's why we as Christians all must adhere to these things steadfastly. Now we've worked our way through Paul's instructions for older men, for older women, and today we finish our discussion on younger women, those women of of marriageable age up to about 60 years old. Now in one sense, it's also finishing the discussion on older women, because it's actually the older women who are to be encouraging the younger women in all these matters. And it's another glorious reminder of the blessing of the church, uh, that we are saved as individuals, but we are saved into the body of Christ, the church. And then we have the privilege and responsibility of helping each other grow and mature in the faith. We are not in this by ourselves. God works through the means of the people around us. Now, all of these introductory remarks are relevant for whichever group in the church needs to be addressed. But they are particularly relevant when it comes to thinking about the Bible's teaching for younger women, because that's probably the most attacked area in our culture today. The world rages against what God has declared is pleasing to him, and upon what he has declared will bring blessing to those who follow him. Unfortunately, many in the church have been deceived into into looking at God's commands from a worldly perspective. They've purchased prescription glasses from the world and view the Bible through them. No more so when it comes to the Bible's teaching on what godliness looks like for his daughters. But Jesus has given us a great commission and it involves teaching all that he commanded. Because to be disciples of Jesus, it means to live in obedience to him. And only when we obey Christ can we live a life that is pleasing to God. So let's turn to Titus 2, if you haven't already. And we're going to read verses 1 to 5 to set the scene. Paul says this, Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. But as for you... Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Now, there are seven instructions for younger Christian women, and today we're going to address the final two. So the sixth standard of godliness for younger women is they are to be kind. Now, the word translated here as kind literally means good. The concept of goodness in the Bible carries a wide range of meanings. One biblical dictionary summarises good as being profitable, 
generous, upright, and virtuous. But the meaning of a word is always driven by its context. And so, in the context of what Paul is laying out for younger women, it seems that by using the word good, he's speaking about the attitude that should undergird the actions of the younger women and the way she goes about things. By stating that younger women are to be good, he means that they have a generous nature. And that is why the translators have gone with the word kind. It's it's to be benevolent, to to express goodwill toward others and a desire to help them. Now this is actually reflective of God himself. In Matthew chapter 20, we see this in Jesus' parable of the workers in the field. Jesus speaks of a master who who goes out to the marketplace at 6am to hire workers uh, offering them a denarius, which was a, a fair, uh, fair price for a full day's work. Now, after agreeing to this, uh, the men set to work. But the master then goes back out to the marketplace again at 9am, 12pm, 3pm and at 5pm, which was only one hour before knockoff time. And, and each time he goes out, he's seeking for more workers in the field. And at the end of the day, the workers gather and the master begins by paying the last ones that he hired. And he gives them each a denarius, even though they'd only worked for an hour. Then as he goes down the line, giving each man the same pay, there is a bit of disgruntlement and dissatisfaction as the the men who worked a full day, they come to realise they're not going to get paid anymore, even though they worked much longer and much harder than anyone else. The master stopped and replied to one of the workers complaining. And in Matthew 20, verses 13 to 15, we read his reply. He said, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the master had a generous nature and chose to give uh, those who had worked the least the same pay as those who had worked the most. And it's clearly a picture of God. He is good and he is generous in his gracious act of salvation. The point of the parable is that the blessing the workers received was not based on what they did, but solely upon the kindness of the master. And that's how salvation works. It's by God's grace alone. It's by his kindness. It's not what we bring, but what God does to save us. The thief on the cross who asked Christ to remember him will experience the blessing of heaven just as much as the believer who has served Christ his entire life. The parable also highlights that Sinners may receive the grace of salvation right up until their last breath, should they bow the knee in repentance of sin and confess Christ as their Saviour and Lord, just like the thief on the cross. This is the kindness of God. But this attitude of the Heavenly Father is what is called upon for younger women. They are to imitate the same generous nature of their Heavenly Father. It's a call to have kindness permeate all of their thoughts and actions. It's a call that is enabled by God's grace because they themselves have been recipients of God's kindness in saving them from his wrath 
by drawing them to faith in his son, Jesus. The word uh, word translated as kind in Titus 2 verse 5, it has overlap in meaning with another word which is also translated as kindness in one place or as kind in another. And so we read in Galatians 5.22, we are told that kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4, we're told that love is kind. So clearly, kindness and generosity are necessary attributes for all Christians. And so they are things that we should all be praying that the Holy Spirit would develop in our lives. But why would kindness be something that is specifically listed for the younger women? Well, the reason is simple. With the world seeking to dismantle the family and to destroy any sense of God-ordained roles and responsibilities, there is the grave temptation for Christian women to carry out their work with resentment. Instead of developing an attitude of kindness, there can fester an attitude of bitterness. Yes, I'll be a worker at home, but I'll not be happy about it. Recently, Crystal and I were watching MasterChef, um, which is that reality TV show where these amateur cooks uh, go into a competition to be the last one standing and crown Australia's next MasterChef. And we love watching it because of uh, seeing the incredible food that's cooked. But one thing that stands out, and it stands out because there's just such constancy in the way it comes about, is the number of female contestants who, when interviewed on the show, keep speaking about how they've been housewives their whole lives, and now it's their time to shine. It's their time to do something for me, something for themselves, uh, to get something they really want. And yet, ironically, these same women continually talk about how much they miss their family, as they can be away for several months at a time during the recording of the show. Now, the attitude of these women highlight a real sense of bitterness, that somehow that they've, they've missed out on life by having to look after their homes. And it's a real temptation for Christian women to allow this kind of thinking to, to come over them as well. So Paul's emphasis on kindness is there to remind women that that they should find their joy in serving others in the way that God has gloriously called them to. It's God's high calling on women to look after their home. And they are called to carry out their role in the same manner of kindness that God exhibits to this world. So what does this look like? Well, a a young woman expresses kindness firstly in her attitude. See, God is not concerned merely with externals. He wants our inner thought lives to be sanctified as well. And so if you find bitterness beginning to seep into your thoughts, what do you do? Well, the first thing is to repent. But secondly, the Apostle Paul has the answer for us in Philippians 4, where he says in verses 8 and 9, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is any wor- anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. 
So it's a call to rejoice in all that God has blessed you with, including the family that he has given you the responsibility and privilege of caring for, of providing for, and of raising them up to know the Lord. Secondly, kindness is expressed in a young woman's address. That is her words, the way she addresses others. We have a biblical example in the excellent wife of Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 verse 26, we read, She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. The manner in which we say something is just as important as the matter that we are saying something about. Both the tone and the topic are significant. Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Colossians 4 verse 6, Paul also states, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, in that context, he is talking specifically about evangelism. But it's nonetheless true that our words should always be gracious, no matter whom we are talking with. Again, these commands from Paul are given to all believers, but they are especially relevant for younger women. So kindness is to be reflected in a young woman's attitude, her address, and finally in her actions. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul emphasizes this well when he says in verses 9 to 10, Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. These good works, these generous works, kind works, are to be the focus of a woman's life. This is what characterizes her life, a life of service to others for the glory of God. This is the fruit of a life that has been transformed by saving grace. So younger women are to be kind. Well, the final standard of godliness for younger women is they are to be submissive to their own husbands. Now, this provides somewhat of a bookend uh, between all that's been laid out for younger women because it ties back to the first standard where Paul says that they are to love their husbands. While our modern culture finds the notion of a wife submitting to a husband absolutely abhorrent, across the majority of church, we would find this teaching either shunned or redefined. We must let the text speak for itself. So what does Paul mean when he calls women to be submissive to their own husbands? Well, first, let's look at the word submissive. It means to arrange under or to make oneself subordinate to the authority of a higher power. That's what it means. In the Greco-Roman world of which the Bible was written or the New Testament was written, uh, the word was used to describe the actions of a soldier submitting to those above him in rank. In the New Testament, the meaning is similar because we see in many places that that Christians are commanded to be subject to the people that God has placed in authority over them. 
Uh, In the book, Rediscovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, uh, John Piper and Wayne Grudem, well-known theologians, they make an extensive list. So here's just a summary of what we find in the New Testament. So children are to submit to their parents. Ephesians 5.21 Children, uh, sorry, citizens are to submit to the government. Titus 3 verse 1 Servants submit to their masters. Titus 2 verse 9 Christ submits to God the Father. 1 Corinthians 15.28 The church submits to Christ. Ephesians 5.24 church, church members submit to their leaders. 1 Peter 5 verse 5 Christians submit to God. Hebrews 12 verse 9 Unseen spiritual powers submit to Christ, 1 Peter 3.22. The universe is subject to Christ, Ephesians 1.22. Now, if you want a copy of those references, come and see me afterwards. But Piper and Grudem conclude. They say that none of these relationships is ever reversed, that his husbands are never told to be subject to their wives, the government to citizens, masters to servants. And they say... The word is never mutual in its force. It's always one directional in its reference to submission to an authority. But we also recognise that when it comes to submission between persons, whether that's in marriage or in the family or in the church or in the workplace, the fact that there are divinely established orders of authority does not mean there is a difference in the value between husbands and wives, between parents and children, between church leaders and church members, between employers and employees. The Bible is clear from the opening chapter that God created man in his image and likeness. And when he created man, when he created humanity, it was a creation of two genders, male and female. And while all people have been born uh, with a sinful nature since the fall, a nature that has tarnished God's image, we are nevertheless still image bearers of God, which means that every person, male and female, old and young, are to be treated with dignity and respect. For those sinners who have been saved by grace, we recognise there is also no spiritual inequality before God. This is what Paul brings out in Galatians chapter 3 when he declares verses 27 to 29. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now this passage is is often used to remove any distinction between the roles of men and women but this passage is not making any comment at all on the roles between men and women paul is not denying ethnicity or social structures or gender but rather paul is glorying in the truth that all who have been graciously brought to faith in christ jesus are now one in christ jesus This passage provides the foundational truth that all believers are on a level playing field before God. We all have equal access to God as heirs to the promise. Every one of us. 
But nevertheless, God has still designed structures of authority into the family and the church and the society that are for our good and for his glory. These were in existence before the fall. Now, they were damaged by the fall, but we see they're also redeemed through Christ. Now, it's true, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, that in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that women in general are to be submissive to men in general. Uh, Reading from the New American Translation, Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So there is a general submission of women to men as part of the created order. But again, there is no loss of dignity in that because Jesus in his incarnation submitted to the will of the Father, his Father, and yet he and his Father are still one. What we need to recognise, however, is that women are not to be submissive to every man in exactly the same way. A woman's submission must be appropriate to the different relationships that she has. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul was establishing a point about the general headship of men because that impacted the way that believing men and women were to honour God in prayer and prophecy outside of the main gathering of the church on the Lord's Day. That was his whole point. And we can't, we certainly can't use that text to suggest that a woman should be subject to every man in exactly the same way. It's simply a reminder that our God-given gender differences are not simply limited to the home or to when we gather as a church. Men are always men. Women are always women. And men are always to serve God as men. And women are always to serve God as women. And so in Titus chapter 2, younger women are called to submit to their own husbands. And we must see that this is a voluntary submission. A wife's submission to her husband is not on the same level as a child's submission to their parents. It's a voluntary submission that she freely enters. And the voluntary nature of this submission is also seen in the fact that nowhere in the New Testament is the husband ever commanded to enforce his wife to submit. Now, aside from the word being preached, the only ones who can legitimately encourage the younger women to submit to their husbands are the older women. We see that in the context of this passage. So what does biblical submission look like? Well, if you quickly turn back in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll see this with great clarity. We're not going to go through the whole passage, but Ephesians 5, let me just read from verses 22 to 24. It says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So what does it mean for a wife to submit to her husband? Well, this glorious passage from the Apostle Paul tells us that her submission to her husband is to be reflective of the way the church submits to Christ. 
Now, it's not an exact analogy in the sense that she's not to relate to her husband as if he were Christ, because he's certainly not. In fact, the husband, if he is a believer, is just as much a redeemed sinner as she is. He's just as much in need of Christ as she is. But what we recognise from this passage is that marriage is the most amazing picture of the gospel. If we flick down to verses 31 to 32, we're told, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So marriage is a reflection of the gospel itself, a picture of Christ and his bride, his redeemed people. That's one of the reasons why we can't redefine marriage as being between one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others for life. We can't redefine it because human marriage reflects something bigger and grander. If you redefine human marriage, you've lost the gospel of which marriage is a reflection. So those who teach that marriage can be something other than between a man and a woman, they have ceased to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the marital union of the husband and wife has been revealed by God as a picture of the union between Christ and his bride, the church. Now, if we go along with the view of many in the church today who assert that there are no differences in the function or the role between husband and wife, that there is to be no headship of the husband and no submission of the wife, then that's to flatten out what marriage actually represents. It's to say that there is no difference between Christ and the church. Paul could not be clearer when he says that the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And then as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. To deny differences in the roles of husband and wife is to deny differences in the roles of Christ and the church. And so in the name of liberty and freedom, many are dragging their marriages away from the foundation, the only foundation that will give their marriage life. Only as the husband seeks to emulate Christ's headship with sacrificial love, and only as the wife seeks to emulate the church's submission with honour and respect will marriages be strengthened. And moreover, as our marriages learn to reflect the relationship of Christ and the church, they will become an illustration to the world, a living, breathing testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, headship and submission were built into the structure of human marriage before the fall. It was tainted and disrupted by the fall, but it was in place beforehand. As is clear by Eve being created as a helper for Adam and the fact that he names her, which is a sign of his authority. But when God first created, he declared everything good. There was nothing wrong with what had been made. It was a beautiful, complementary relationship between the man and the woman. However, after the fall, we read in Genesis 3.16 that Eve was told by God, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So when listening to the serpent, 
The woman usurped her husband's headship and that would be her punishment from then on. Instead of respecting her husband's loving authority, she would forever be trying to topple him. Now that's made clear by Genesis 4 verse 7, where Cain, Adam and Eve's son, was told that sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Sin is personified here. Sin wanted to take, overtake Cain. And it's the same phrasing that's used to describe what would be the desire of all women from then on. And so aggressive wives and passive husbands will not lead to blessed marriages. And yet we also recognise, we must recognise that the effect of sin was not merely upon women, but upon men as well. You see, instead of providing sacrificial servant leadership in their marriage, this contorts into a dictatorial, ungodly domination. So passive wives and aggressive husbands will not lead to blessed marriages either. Now here it's important to say that biblical submission is not about living in fear. Kathy Keller Uh, wife of the well-known complementarian reform preacher Timothy Keller. She stated the following in a book that they wrote together on marriage. She said this, A wife is not to give her husband unconditional obedience. No human being should give any other human being unconditional obedience. As the Apostle Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. Acts 5.29 In other words, a wife should not obey or aid a husband in doing things that God forbids, such as selling drugs or physically abusing her. If, for example, he beats her, the strong help that a wife should exercise is to love and forgive him in her heart, but to have him arrested. It's never kind or loving to anyone to make it easy for him or her to do wrong. Those are very helpful words from Kathy Keller. Human history is the story of the battle of the sexes. Not only did sin cause a giant rift between humanity's relationship with God, but also in humanity's relationship within itself. But this is what makes the gospel such amazing good news. For in Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, he has come to redeem his people through the cross bringing reconciliation between holy God and sinful man for all who believe upon Jesus. And moreover, the blessing of reconciliation between fellow believers. Now, particularly thinking about the marriage relationship, we know that regenerated souls are now new creations and are filled with the Holy Spirit and enabled by God's grace to live in righteousness and to strive for godliness. And in Jesus Christ, husbands have the ultimate example of what biblical headship is. And in Scripture's teaching on the church, wives are given the blueprint for how they are to respect their husbands through love and submission. Paul puts it all very simply in Colossians 3, 18-19, where he says, Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord, and husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. In Christ Jesus, that is the absolute reversal of the effects of the fall. Well, as we near the end of our time now, we can't forget 
that Paul finishes his discussion of godliness for younger women by giving a significant reason for why this instruction is necessary. What is the reason for godliness? It is that the word of God may not be reviled. This reason right here removes many of the arguments that have been put forward by those wishing to deny functional differences between husbands and wives. Proponents of functional equality suggest that when Paul called women to be submissive to their husbands, he was simply accommodating to the culture of his day. But there is much more at stake than simply upsetting cultural norms. Paul is concerned about the word of God. The word of God primarily refers to the gospel itself, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the call to receive the blessings of his work by believing upon him. But of course, the gospel is not the only thing that God has spoken. The gospel, as we said earlier, is the heart of this message. But the 66 books of the Bible constitute God's revealed word to us, his whole counsel. And what Paul is saying here is that it is vital for Christian women to strive for these standards of godliness Because if they live in ways contrary to what God has revealed, then they show that God's word is not that valuable or not that powerful. These are more than cultural standards. They are God's standards. And the functional difference between husbands and wives is reflected gloriously in the relationship of Christ to the church. So if a a woman has confessed Christ but fails to love her husband and children, fails to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, fails to be submissive to her own husband, then she's going to cast shadows on God's word. The purpose of godly living is to remove any reproach upon what God has said. If we say that we've been redeemed from slavery to sin and yet continue to live in disobedience to God, then what message does that send to the world? And yet Paul is not alone in his comments to younger women. He will make the same point again when he addresses young men and also when he speaks about slaves in this same chapter. Don't think that he's singling out one person here. Godliness matters. Godliness is what accords with sound doctrine. If there's no godliness, then it calls into question the soundness of the doctrine. It calls into question the word of God. And it gives opportunity for the world to bring scorn upon God's word. When the Apostle Peter speaks about the marriage relationship... He is also emphatic about the importance of godliness because in some cases it is a wife's godliness that will advance the gospel. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 3 verses 1 to 2. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. The situation he's addressing is a marriage in which the wife has become a Christian. And Peter's not saying that the unbelieving husbands can be one without responding to the message of the gospel. He's he's already affirmed uh, back in chapter 1 that his, his readers had only been born again by the word of God. 
But what he is doing is advocating the importance of godliness. As the wife lovingly submits to her husband, she displays the beauty of a transformed life and makes the gospel truly glorious and inviting. Now, if that can be the effect within a marriage itself, it would nevertheless be true in a woman's interaction with her children, wider family, or anyone else for that matter. Because while Peter was speaking directly about the marriage relationship, Paul makes no limitation in his address to Titus. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a life-altering thing. When a person is graciously regenerated by the work of the Spirit through his word, and they are enabled to repent of their sin and trust in Christ Jesus as Lord and Saviour, they are made a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. If you have not submitted to Jesus Christ, then I implore you to do so. For without him, you are still dead in your sins and your trespasses, and you will face eternal judgment when you stand before God. So trust in Jesus. Unlike the thief on the cross, you may not know when your time is up. And so let this be the day of your salvation. But for all who have confessed Christ as Saviour and Lord, we know that we now have the hope of eternal life and we have the joy of reconciliation with God. And we also have the example of Jesus Christ to follow. And by the work of the Spirit, we are conformed more and more into his image and likeness until one day we are finally glorified at his return. Knowing Christ, being united to him in faith, dying to sin and living to righteousness means that our lives will look different to the world. And by God's grace, he has revealed how he wants us to live as his children. For the younger women, I pray that you would come to see that what God has laid out for you is from his heart of love and from his knowledge of what will bring you true blessing and what will bring him the most glory. For they are one in the same. For the older women, I pray that you would see the incredible value and necessity of what God has placed before you in training the younger women in godliness. Every Christian has a role to play in edifying and growing and uplifting those in the church. And that is the way that God has designed it for his glory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the knowledge that we are saved by your grace. We also recognize that we are sanctified by your grace. We are we are not saved by our works and yet once we are saved you draw us into the works you prepared for us and you empower us by your grace and by the indwelling Holy Spirit to serve you. Father, we thank you so much that you have not left us in the dark as to what it means to be a child of God. Thank you for this clear teaching of the Apostle Paul. May you continue to... uh, Encourage us as a church as we continue working through these these aspects of godliness for the whole church. May you convict us each where we fall short. 
May you help us to submit to your word where our lives do not align to what you have said. May you humble us, convict us and strengthen us to follow you by the power of your spirit. Father, as we seek to grow in godliness as, as a congregation, as a whole, may you help us to be great witnesses for you in this community. May, we, may our lives stand out as salt and light. And yet may we not be tempted to rest on the way that we live, but recognise the truth that faith comes from hearing the word of God. And so let us proclaim that loudly. Truthfully and graciously, let us speak this truth in love. Father, we thank you for all the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.